Second Peter chapter 1. We've been looking at this book. I'm going to be in chapter 3 for this morning's service, but trying to understand what it, Peter's swan song, deathbed concern for them is that they not be led away with the error of the wicked, that they not be unduly influenced by false teachers, but that they come to a full assurance of faith, that they be grounded and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, and that they genuinely grow in their spiritual lives. And as we looked at last time in Sunday school, starting in verse 5, and beside this, besides the like precious faith and the promises that God has given us, giving all diligence, and he uses that word multiple times through the book, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. And so he gave, we looked briefly at the the process of growth as it is laid out there, and I want to go back and kind of re- visit those in a little more depth about specifically what each of those seven things mean. What does that look like in our life? What does it mean to give diligence to them? So when you think of the concept of diligence, what does that entail? What does that require? What does that mean to give diligence to something? That's a question. Work hard. Continuing to work hard. Priority. Anything else? Those are all good, obviously. I I think uh, another restatement of it is what do you do every day? Right, that it's not in fits and starts. It's not kind of picking it up, dropping it. That there's a sense of constancy. That as I reflect upon my spiritual life, we're we're trying to drill into what does diligence in my spiritual life look like? What would be the opposite of diligence? Negligence. I neglect it. I let it, and so constant attention. You may be aware of, uh, I got to spend a week with Pastor Nichols, and so, I mean, that's a theological education in a week. But his diet and how he tracks every calorie and every meal and everything that he ate and every ounce and every calorie, it's exhausting, right? Just watching him re- record all of this and if he misses a meal oh what I forgot to record so there's a diligence to it it's the every detail and so he was recounting for the last month the month of February how much I weighed at the beginning of February how much I weigh at the end how many calories I had for this week how many I burned with exercise and just tracking all of it in meticulous detail so that if you want to know what he weighed, I'm sure you're dying to know what he weighed on February 1st and what he weighed on 
February 27th, he could tell you, right? There's a meticulous, detailed, and so diligence in our spiritual life is, is a reflection of what do we do every day. That is the real measure of what our spiritual, what is our spiritual daily attention and diligence uh, to our spiritual life. Because when you think about growth in grace, when you think about spiritual growth, it's hard to quantify like it is with a diet. And, and you, you don't get to, wouldn't it be nice if you could step on a spiritual scale? And you just step on this scale and it says, well, here's where you're at spiritually. You're at this level. You're, I remember stepping on my kids got for Christmas or something from their grandparents got a Wii game. And they had this thing where you step on it and, it, and they want to record your weight. And I'll never forget, I stepped on it and it said, it, I don't think it was morbidly obese. I think it was just obese. You're obese. You know, for a 30-something man to step, and, and to just across the big screen, you know, obese. And I've, I've thought of myself a lot of ways, but the term I would never have used would have been obese. And I thought, I need to lose some weight, right? Can you, you know, so imagine spiritually, how do we accurately understand where am I at spiritually, right? How do I... How do I uh, quantify that? How do I measure that? You know, because if you, you know, if you've been a Christian for very long, you realize that it's not flat. And so, knowing when I'm growing, knowing when I'm backsliding, when I'm making progress, when I'm declining, and and in in our day, there's really an aversion to like any way to measure that. They don't want any measure because that produces accountability. I've dealt with this extensively in schools is we have a large number of families who do not want to take any form of test, standardized test, because then that's going to pigeonhole their child and say, yeah, they're in eighth grade, but they're at a fourth grade reading level. Well, how dare you? So in Oregon, it was a, a whole big hullabaloo where the vast majority of families would opt out of the test. You know, so a school, how do you know as a school that you're doing well? How do you know as a teacher if you're doing well? And so we come up with our own test. Right? Well, you're not going to do that one? Well, you have to do this one. And, and there are school districts that had 96% of their families opt out of the test of any Right? We just don't want. And so there's an aversion to that in our culture and even in our spiritual lives of how do I know how I'm doing? Uh, J.C. Ryle says this, when I speak of growth in grace, I only mean increase in the degree, size, strength, vigor, and power of the graces which the Holy Spirit implants in a believer's heart. Right? More of it. More of the same. I hold that every one of those graces allows for growth, progress, and increase. More of that, right? I hold that repentance can deepen. Faith, hope, love, 
humility, zeal, courage. They may be little or great. I could have a little bit of it, or do I have a lot of it? Are they strong or are they weak? Are they vigorous or are they feeble? And may vary greatly in the same man at different periods of his life. It's not like becoming an Eagle Scout. You earn the pin and then you have that and then that's you, 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 you can't, they can't take it away from you. The graces of the spiritual life ebb and flow and they're not static. And so what I was, you know, 20 years ago doesn't matter today in the sense of am I still diligently uh, continuing to do that? When I speak of a man growing in grace... I mean simply that his sense of sin is becoming deeper. His faith is stronger. His hope is brighter. His love more extensive. His spiritual mindedness more evident. He feels more of the power of godliness in his own heart. He manifests more of it in his life. He is growing from strength to strength, from faith to faith, and from grace to grace. He's increasing, right? And so that is why, looking at this passage, we see specific areas to say, well, how diligent am I in this grace? Is it strong or weak? Is, it grow is the trajectory up or is the trajectory down? Again, if you look at Pastor Nichols, you know, He's, he knows his calorie burn. You know, he's trying to increase it. He knows how many he burned. And am I on this slope or am I on this slope? And so that is what, as we give all diligence, we want to be committed to. So then as we look at these individual things, I want to spend just a few minutes with each of them when it comes to diligently adding virtue. Right? We talked about this briefly but it is the effect of God's law now being written on your heart. Webster defines virtue as the practice of moral duties, abstaining from vice. It is the conformity of life to the moral law. Well, well we can solve that. Let's just get rid of the moral law. right? Problem solved. Now I'm, I can evaluate my spirituality by a different standard. It is the practice of these moral duties from motivated by what? Not self-righteousness, but it is on our heart. It is out of sincere love to God. Virtue is voluntary, this is Webster, voluntary obedience to truth. I, I desire these things. I want these things. But we don't want to stop at moral excellence. Why do I say that? What would be the result if we just said, well, now we've added moral excellence, and that's where it just called a sack, it stops. What could be the problem with that? Exactly, moralism. That that's as far as it gets, is that I keep the laws and I have, I have morality. And what happened, what happened with the Pharisees is they started straining at gnats while they were at the same time swallowing camels, is our sense of proportion, because why? If we're going to grow, what has to happen? We have to start, well, I'm not really keeping that, but I'm keeping this, right? I'm, I'm tithing out of my herb garden, 
Right? I'm real strict to do that, but neglecting the weightier matters right, that, that happen. We don't want to have merely a negative spirituality. You know what I mean by that? What's a negative spirituality? What I don't do. Right? Now, is there an aspect of when you become a Christian that there's things that you add virtue and you just say, well, that's not consistent with the life now and I don't do it anymore. But if it stops there, it turns into moralism. Listen to Sproul said this, in every generation of Christians, there have been widespread attempts not only to ignore virtues set in the Scriptures, but to supplant them with something far less demanding. There are churches that project a profile of a Christian as someone who does not dance, go to movies, or drink and smoke. I, I highlighted this. As if these were major matters in the kingdom of God. Are those, is that really what the kingdom of God is all about, meat and drink? I think we have somebody who said it's not that. Right? And they make it that. And so that's how they measure their spirituality. That if you really probed into and talked to them and fleshed out how they're evaluating themselves as a Christian, it's everything they don't do. I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't... Okay, right? What if we only evaluated our diet by all the things I didn't eat? Well, what do you eat, right? What are you doing and when we're talking about major matters in the kingdom of God, he said, he went on to say, it is much easier to refrain from movie going than to acquire a character known for patience, kindness, and meekness. Right? Which would be easier to do. And so we don't want to deceive ourselves as to think, I don't do this, I don't do this, but do you do this? And so to have those characteristics... Right? This is where Scripture talks about the putting off and the putting on. Not just one side of it, but both. I like Philippians 1.27, Let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, not attending the movies. Right? That's not how what he was pleading with them, that you're striving together for the faith of the gospel, that you're advancing the kingdom, not just avoiding, right? There is an aspect of keep yourself unspotted from the world, but that's not the end all. I think you get it. So then we don't want to stop at virtue. Then we want to add to virtue knowledge. We want to be, I use the term, I like lifelong learner. I have a, a man I met in Malawi a few years ago who was, was uh, around his 70s, and he decided he wanted to learn how to play the violin. And he wanted to send the message to his children that I'm not done, right? It's not over. I, I still can take on something new. Now, you know, there's a timeline there. There's a shelf life. But is that to have the concept that, like I said, you don't just get a degree and then that capstone and then you, there's no continuing education. You just pretty much already know everything. We want to have a, a mindset. And so what does diligence look like when it comes to knowledge? 
It's not just casual. It means to give constant attention and become a theologian. To be people who are growing in their knowledge of the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It is people who are growing in their knowledge of systematic theology and how to apply it to life and wisdom and practical theology. Would you agree with me that our world has enough armchair theologians? Right? Who just sit back and they can just kind of pick out where everybody else is wrong. And I always like to say, well, what are you doing to advance the kingdom? What are your positive efforts? Well, no, I just like to critique. I have the gift of rebuke. We call that in our family. We have the gift of rebuke. We know what other people are doing wrong. The reason I say that is because a lot of uh, contemporary individuals think that listening to sermons and podcasts is, is, is adding knowledge and you're really growing. You understand what I mean by that? That that's not the same as digging into the Scriptures for yourself. right? That would be like me saying, I know how to heat up any meal you want in the microwave. Right? Can you live off of that? Yes. I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to sermons and podcasts. But you understand diligence and knowledge is not just listening to what somebody else, the work they do. I mean, I could look at all the meals I've eaten this week and say, yeah, I could heat that up. That's not a big deal. I could put that, I mean, it was already made for me, but now I can take it and heat it up and use it. Right? Is that somebody who is a, a cook, they learn to make things from scratch. They understand what things go with what things and how to put things together. That's a cook. And so if we're diligent to add knowledge, we're not just able to microwave something. Because the problem is, is if you just listen to what other people make, then you, again, you understand, that I'm not against sermons, right? I'm not against podcasts. I'm not against learning that. But if that's all that it is, it's not really digging into it on your own. It's, it's not really, uh, what does a, my boys love basketball? I got five little boys. The oldest is uh, 12, down to five. And I was talking to my wife this week, and as soon as they got a warm day like we did here where it melted all the snow, they, they were dragging the basketball hoop out of the garage, Right? As soon as we get a day, we're going to set that thing back up and we've got to keep practicing. Right? There, there's a diligence there. And so we can, the scriptures say, use, you're familiar with Colossians 3.16, to have the, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. They said of John Bunyan that when you poked him, he bled bibline. That that's what came out of him was the scriptures. And so when something is rich, if you have a rich dessert, and, it, and as soon as it touches your tongue, what does it reveal? This has a lot of sugar in it, right? This is, this is saturated. And so if the scriptures are richly dwelling in us, in our conversation, what comes out? Now, you understand, there's a prideful way that, you know, you can, you can put on airs of, but, if you've truly digested and the scriptures are, you're meditating on them day and night, 
that you're finding delight in them, that that's what you're, it's going to affect your conversation. Just like the things that we delight in are going to affect what we talk about. Peter also says in 1 Peter, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So one way we can measure our spiritual growth is for my appetite for the scriptures. Whether I desire to be in them or if it just seems, sounds like broccoli and cabbage. We want to know, Paul said in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. I, I want to know him not just theoretically, but experientially and practically. I want to walk with God every day of my life. And, and to be diligent in that. And then diligently adding to knowledge temperance and dealing with our desires, our flesh. There's a war here. One man said it means controlling the passions instead of being controlled by them, by our desires. For a Christian, self-control is submission to the control of the indwelling spirit, the spirit against the flesh. And so there's a we can measure how controlled am I by the flesh and how controlled am I by the influence of the spirit. How is my appetite? I can measure that. I know when I go on a diet... My body is screaming at me, like, you need a punch key. You need a custard donut. You need an apple fritter. Who do you think you are withholding this from us? That You need that. And it calls to me, right? And so we develop appetites, and then we've all, for a brief period of time in our lives, when we are eating well and our appetite is right, then you eat something like that and you're like, whoa, there's a, a lot of sugar in that. Drink a sip of pop. Whoa, how did I just pound those things multiple a day as sweet as they are? Because your appetite changes. D.A. Carson says, people do not drift toward holiness. Spiritual growth isn't going to happen by accident. Well, <laughs> Look at here. Look where we ended up. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. Right? You know, I've just I've learned to be more tolerant, right? Because we don't like we don't like to say, well, I've just compromised my values. Right? We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. Well, I'm not bound like I used to be. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost, lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. You understand the, the tendency is diligence, is, is self-examination. Like, what is my motive in this? Is this a healthy balance, calibration, or am I sliding into a ditch and justifying myself? And so diligence is taking that time of self-reflection and saying, okay, we're, right, when I'm, not eating well and gaining weight, I don't need to record my diet. To, yeah, I already know 
you know, when if I'm eating well, that's when I want to record it. Does that make sense? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, so it's not living on the past or drawing on the past. It is keeping certain perennial principles permanently present, always before me. We must forcibly remind ourselves daily of certain principles, otherwise they will not actively be operating in our daily life. And so this is where the essence of what Peter is saying in, in diligence is your daily Tell me what you do daily. Tell me what your daily diligence is, and that will reflect it. There's a lot of scriptures here, but when we think of our flesh, the, the scriptures, and, and by experience we know, that there are four, because when we say kind of abstractly the flesh, I don't want to be controlled by the flesh, I want to be controlled by the spirit. What does that mean? Well, there are certain desires that God gave your body that you can't just say, I'm not going to do that anymore. That whole sleep thing, we're just going to cut that out. Right? And so when we think about our flesh, we're specifically talking about eating. Right? God gave us a hunger appetite. Sleeping. Right? You, you can be up. Late, you know, one night we stayed up till 1 o'clock, these young kids, you know. And 1 o'clock, and then the next day we're all kind of, right? But there was a desire that says, hey, stupid, go lay down and close your eyes. You know, every day a new resurrection, right? Go lay down and then wake up. There's sexual desire, right? That's God-given. And then there is a desire for dominion to own things, to rule things. Any of those can get out of whack. So temperance is balancing them, bringing them under spirit control. That what is a healthy, right view of food? What is a right view? And we're inclined to intemperance, right? When it comes to eating, we have people who are digging their grave with a fork, and then you have people who are bulimic, anorexic, starving themselves, right? When it comes to eating or to uh, to sleep, you have slothful sluggards who sleep their life away, and then you have workaholics who work every minute of every day and are pursuing it. When it comes to sexual desire, you have the monks, and then you have our society, right? That's pornographic. When it comes to dominion, you have those who are minimalists, sell everything, you know, owning or you know, ruling things. They just don't want any stress or pressure. And then you have those who are greedy and covetous and want to rule the whole world. And like Russia, we're just going to take over a whole country. Why? Because they're not, you think, you got all of Russia. Do you have that so managed that you need another? And so dominion and, and the need for power, and so we have to temper those things and evaluate those things and bring them under the Spirit's control. And so this is where when you think of a man like John the Baptist, Jesus said, gave a great, great compliment, of men born of women, there's not a greater than John the Baptist. Well, how did he manage his diet and 
personal discipline. That wasn't all that it was, but it was that. It wasn't, right? it wasn't more, less than that, but it was more than that. Why is that? Because these things all go together. Right? We had a study, our men's were doing a monthly study on moral purity. And we were talking about how when you are up late at night, pounding through a half gallon of ice cream, not sleeping, what does that do to temptation? Well, your flesh gets used to being told yes. Right? I want that? Yes, you can have it. I want that? Yes, you can have it. Well, what happens when you tell your flesh no? Right? Is there temperance is telling your flesh, no, you don't get that right now. Right? That's the essence in many ways of what fasting is, is it's just telling your flesh, no, you can't have it. And if you're like me, your your body is turning itself inside out and screaming like a little three year old child, spoiled child. Right? But bringing that into subjection that I'm not going to be ruled by just these natural fleshly desires. Right? We have the Olympics going on. That's diligence. I was watching the races with Pastor Nichols yesterday. He's, and I, I'm not a runner nor the son of a runner uh, at all. But we're watching these and they're trying to qualify for the world championships. And they're all running, right? They could beat all of us and run laps around us. But to beat the race that they're running, they're trying to shave just, you know, hundreds of seconds off. Hundreds of seconds. And they're diligent to their stride and their pace and and their breathing. And they're just micro-analyzing the detail of that. Right? Remember when Paul said, and they do it to obtain what? A corruptible crown. But we do it to obtain an incorruptible. Therefore, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Right? I'm not going to let my body tell me how it's going to live. I have to bring it into subjection for an incorruptible. Wearsby said self-control has to do deal, has to do, excuse me, with handling the pleasures of life. While patience relates primarily to the pressures and problems of life. Right? We have to be able to, as Paul said in Philippians, be content. Uh, how did he say that? Um, I know how to abound and I know how to be abased. That's temperance. You heat it up, you cool it off. You heat it up, you cool it off. That's how you temper steel. Well, he says, I, I know how to, God can open up the windows of heaven and pour it out and, and, and be okay, and I know how to deal with that. And then he can turn around and take it all away and abase me, and I know how to deal with that. And as I look back at my life, it's like God has said, well, we're going to, let's just you twist the dials here and try this. And what I found is some people do well with prosperity. It doesn't go to their head, they don't, but then struggle with being abased. And some people I know love, handle being abased. I have a friend who, you know, their desire was to move over to Kurdistan and work in an orphanage, and that just made them feel so alive. 
but then they get jobs and, and people are just dumping money on them and they just, it makes them feel not spiritual. Like, I can't handle that. Well, God wants us to be able to handle whether we're abased or abound, everywhere and in all things, I'm instructed to be full and to, and to suffer need. I can do all things, the whole spectrum through Christ. And so diligently adding that. And I like how it individualizes this. You can't take it all on at the same time. But to have focus and say, okay, where am I at in this process? Here's what I'm drilling in on. Here's what I'm focusing on. And then diligently adding to temperance, patience. Right? Which one of us hasn't started a budget or a diet for three days? Right? We laugh because after about three days, you ah, I think I kind of got this. <laughs> right? We, we don't mind doing the research and going through all the effort, but now it's the day to day to day. And anything in this life, everything that is worth anything requires patience. Requires that uh, uh, long obedience in the same direction. It requires that just one foot in front of the other, that plodding. I was, uh, we were talking yesterday about the Boston Marathon a few years ago when there was these torrential rains. And this little little lady wins the Boston Marathon. Beat the Kenyans. Whoever beats the Kenyans. Those people live at high elevation. They're used to low oxygen. Their, their legs come up to their neck. And they weigh 85 pounds. And they just run. Right? And this little little woman wins the Boston Marathon because in the face of that hurricane and adversity, she just kept going. She was a mutter, right? She just kept plodding through the mud. And so learning patience and learning to enjoy the process, learning to take baby steps, learning to not squander momentum and just keep going. I think of Noah building the ark. What are we going to do today? <laughs> well, we can cut down trees we can make boards or we can nail boards together. Which one would you like to do? But we pretty well know when we get up in the morning what, what's on the agenda and do it again tomorrow. And then diligently adding to that patience, godliness, a reverence for God and for his character. Webster says it's a religious life, a careful observance of the laws of God and performance of religious duties proceeding from love and reverence for the divine character. It's not motivated by self-righteousness, but of a desire to please God. It is living all of life in the presence of God. There's no compartmentalization. Well, this is Sunday, and then Monday's a totally different Combination. Obviously, there's a distinction there, but that we're living it as if God sees us on Monday like he does on Sunday. I saw a quote recently that said something to the effect of, on Facebook, what you spend your leisure time doing is your religion. When you have free time, what do you, what do you want to fill that? What do you think is happiness and that you want to fill that with? 
And I realize I'm not trying to be a curmudgeon here and say, well, you better just be stuck in your closet with your scriptures or else you're not right with God. Right? But there is an aspect of that that I just really love the Lord and I enjoy being with Him and serving Him and that that is satisfying to me. I was reading Psalm 4 this morning and David says, my joy is greater than in the time when their corn and wine increased. In a bountiful harvest, my I have more than that. Right? Because during a bountiful harvest, everybody's celebrating and rejoicing. And he's saying, man, I have that every day. And it really comes down to believing that Christ is the desire of our hearts. I don't know about you, I struggle with that. Right? Because I'm a covetous person by nature and thinking, well, something else, that'll. And really getting to the place that, as you probably heard Piper say, that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. It's true. One man said that godliness, right? Because defining godliness, if I asked you to write on a notebook card, define godliness. Put it in your own words. What does that mean? That's a godly person. One exercise I like to do is ask people, who's the godliest person that you know? And they usually stop and think, and how do you how did you determine that that was a godly person? And defining it and saying, okay, how am I adding this? I'm not trying to add self-righteousness. Right? I would like of my children to say that I was a godly father, a godly husband. Well, what does that look like? What am I actually trying to do? One man said it's in a practical awareness of God in every aspect of life. That God just bleeds into everything. I think I mentioned before that this is a principle I'm trying to teach my children, trying to live out is that Jesus Christ is more valuable than anything. And Jesus Christ is more valuable than everything. And then live that way. That can be hard. It is communion with God. A consciousness of God. It's having the mind of Christ. It's dealing with pride and selfishness. I'd rather just keep a list of rules of things I don't do, right? Instead of having to deal with pride and selfishness and having the mind of Christ and thinking about him. And what was the mind of Christ fleshed out in Philippians 2? Knew who he was, humbled himself, looked on the things of others, not on his own things, unselfish and humble. And I have just two main problems in my life. I'm proud and selfish. And just working on those and being aware of them. And then getting to adding to godliness brotherly kindness. It's no longer about me, it's about others. Looking on the things of others. You know, our sister uh, Ginger this week was a testimony of that every day. Just every meal, getting up, plodding along. Cooking, what would you like? How can I serve you? What can I make? How can I be a blessing to you? That's is why Pastor Nichols is so spoiled, right? That's his cross to carry 
every day is having a wife who gets up and is kind. I haven't, I'm sure she has her day where she's, you know, has a day when she's not. I didn't see it. But just kind. Just kind to other people. Thinking about other people. I overheard her many times calling other people. How are you doing today? Thinking about, I don't get up and think, I wonder how other people are doing. Right? I wake up and think, well, how am I doing today? What do I want? And calling people on their birthday and calling people to see how they're doing with the snow and calling people about this and just kind. And just being diligent to consciously think about it's not about me. It's loving other people and being kind to them. It's loving the saints in your church. It's loving Christians even if you disagree with them. Because we're going to live forever with them. You ever wonder, and I'm sure Brother Adam has this, you ever are amazed at what children will argue and fight over? And you just think, are you really going to have that argument again? Like, does it matter whether you're in the third row or the second row of the van? Is that really the difference maker? I mean, you're just sitting there and riding and then get out. And it's just, you would think that their, their life was at stake if they get pushed to the third row instead of the second row. I mean, how are we going to survive? And you can tell I handle it really well, right? It's like, what's the matter with you kids? That you cannot just get in the vehicle and sit in a seat and be happy. And yet, when we think of church life, how often is that? There's just needless striving. You know, what's he saying, Galatians? If you're not careful, you're going to devour each other. You're going to literally consume each other over what? Is it not true that often the last people to benefit from our sanctification is our family? Right? That we will be, by nature be kinder to other people. I know growing up with three brothers. Right? It was easy to be kind to other people. But my brothers, there's just such a rut of strife that we would argue about that it's just a little harder to be gracious to them. And how it should be the opposite of that. That really... Our spouse and our children should be the primary beneficiaries of, of God working in our life. Why did the scriptures need to say, let brotherly love continue? Because it's not inclined to continue. And then, charity. Now we're not loving our family and our brothers and sisters, but I found this quote very convicting. God's love is evoked not by what we are, but by what He is. It has His origin in the agent, not in the object. So a charitable person is not doing it based on the one that they're loving. It's an overflow of who they are. We love Him because He first loved us. He was love, is love, he set his affection on us when we were unlovable. And so if we are going to be diligent to add charity to our life, it has to spring from within. 
that the love of God fills our heart and then is able to be directed toward others. So where are you at in the growth process? Are you, you know, you have kids line up by the closet door and you mark their progress and growth, and we've we've yet to have them shrink, right? Wouldn't it be nice if in the Christian life you just it was a one way, always growing, never sliding back? And how would you evaluate and describe your diligence and and grace driven effort? Not driven because you have to please someone, and but just out of a desire to love Christ, to serve Him. One man said, in these verses, Peter has summarized his ideas on Christian discipleship. This is how to keep from falling, is to be pressing on the upward way, continually pushing forward. And this is how to remain effective for Christ in this world as well as in the next. If you look at in Second uh, Peter one, look in verse um, verse eleven, uh, verse ten, ten and eleven. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. But then look at verse 11. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? An entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. What did anybody have a different translation of how they translate that? So it's talking about our entrance at death into the into the kingdom. What is that entrance going to be like? Anyone else have something let me read you one of the commentators on this I thought was helpful. The metaphor of entry into the kingdom may well go back to the honors paid to a victor in the Olympic Games. So they go and they win a victory. When they return to their home city, how are they received? Right? Remember in high school, we went to the state semifinals in baseball and, and the they had a parade as we you know, come home winning and, and the police and the sirens and the fire department, right? And they, they're honking their horns and there's an entrance. He says, in his home city, in her joy and pride in his success, would welcome him back, not through the usual gate, but through a part of the wall specially broken down to afford him entrance. You understand what they're saying? So if you have a city and you have a wall around it, you have normal gates where everybody goes in and out. And as a display of honor, they wouldn't have him go in the normal gate. They would go to the wall, break out a new gate, a new entrance, that he was the first one to go through this gate. It is an abundant entrance into the kingdom that they're welcoming and that they're honoring. And so his appeal is not a 
everybody does it the same, right? We have people really balk at differentiation, right? Participation trophy mentality. Genuine honor. But the honor here is that those who have labored and served and received honors, the Medal of Honor, that you have served Christ with distinction and honor. And He wanted them to have an abundant entrance into the kingdom. Christ says this in Matthew 25. He talks about it. Let me read you, I'll close with this, an excerpt from Pilgrim's Progress when he gets to that, that entrance into the celestial city. Let me read you this. Now that while they were thus drawing towards the gate, behold, a company of the heavenly host came out to meet them, to whom it was said by the other two shining ones, These are the men that have loved our Lord when they were in the world, and they have left all for his holy name. And he has sent us to fetch them, and we have brought them on their desired journey, that they may go in and look their Redeemer in the face with joy. Friend, I can't help but thinking about, uh, uh, is it Philip, who was stoned, and they threw the clothes at the feet of Saul? Stephen. Sorry, I knew it wasn't Philip, but I couldn't. The other deacon, right? So when Stephen is stoned, do you remember what he said as he had his entrance into the kingdom? I see Christ, not seated at the right hand of the Father, standing to receiving. An abundant entrance. Anyway, he goes on. Then the heavenly host gave a great shout, saying, Blessed are they that are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There came out also at this time to meet them several of the king's trumpeters, clothed in white and shining raiment, who with melodious noises and loud made even the heavens to echo with their sound. These trumpeters saluted Christian and his fellow with 10,000 welcomes from the world, and they did this with shouting and sound of a trumpet. These two men went in at the gate, and lo, as they entered, they were transfigured. And they had raiment put on that shone like gold. There were also that met them with harps and crowns and gave to them the harps to praise and the crowns in token of honor. Then I heard in my dream that all the bells of the city rang again for joy. And that it was said unto them, Enter into the joy of our Lord. I also heard the men themselves say, and they sang with a loud voice, saying, Blessing and honor, glory and power be to him that sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. There were also of them that had wings, and they answered one another without intermission, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And after that they shut up the gates, which when I had seen it, I wished myself among them. Don't we wish ourselves among them? I think I'll end there. I was going to give a little bit, go a different direction, but giving diligence. This was Peter's desire. If you read the next verses, 12 through 15, he realizes his entrance is about to happen. That was what was on his mind in praying that 
He desired that they would have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.